morning. We're still in Job, obviously, and we'll be there for quite some time. But uh, we're diving into what I call some philosophical reasonings. Um, I think most of us have heard this expression before. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. I'm sure you heard that right from your mom's lips. Um, The friends have been eerily and uselessly silent. And when they do talk, they remain useless and tone deaf with nothing nice to say. Uh, From another angle, if you want to look at this, imagine being at a, a meeting at work and you're discussing problems in the company Yet everyone is at the table and all they can do is express their opinions about the problem, their take on the issues at hand, uh, no solutions and no help offered because everyone's consumed with expressing and protecting their viewpoint. The friends say a lot of the same things in different ways, attempting to maintain their way of seeing life. And as we read through these guys' speech and and read through what Job says, Job is going to get dark and a little belligerent and sometimes rebellious in what he says. Uh, But what we're going to see is that he's walking his way to truth and that God in the end, uh, though Job doesn't have to repent of some things he said, is going to look at Job's journey uh, to the truth and to the gospel. We're going to see that through there. Uh, Their differences are often in their approach, who they are. Why I call this philosophical reasonings is because Eliphaz is more of the philosopher, He's examining things, and with that, he becomes a bit of a know-it-all, and you're going to see that in 527. Bildad is your traditionalist. This is how things happened in the past, and so that's how it is. And he's a bit of a nasty fella and a little bit vindictive. And then there's Zophar, who is both dogmatic and a theorist, which doesn't go together. Uh, What he says, he believes is fact, but then he ponders questions But that pondering never enters his mind. It's just for Job to ponder because anything he says is fact. So you get an idea of who they are. Uh, They're different, but there's some shared commonalities. I'm going to list four things that I hope you can remember through all the conversations with these guys. It's uh, Robert File noted these, um, and it makes them useless comforters and counselors, but it gives you an idea of their framework and how they've gone wrong. Because as you read the friend's statements, you're going to notice that a lot of things are true or sound true, but it's their application that is off, and it's also the bias or the premise from which they start. So here are some of the things to remember. One, they have a simplistic and mechanical idea of God. Very rigid, very simple, very rigid. They make good observations, but apply them incorrectly. Here's where that connects. In their mind, there is an, there's no developing relationship with God. You're not growing in your relationship with God at all. And when you're not growing in a relationship, you have no relationship at all. And so what they're saying, the premise they have, is that there is no personal relationship with your Savior or with your God, uh, which means there's no relationship at all. Two, they think they can prove God's point better than God can. Now, you're going to see this as an overarching component, not something you pick out directly in a statement, Uh, but you're going to see at the end of Job that they're condemned for what they say, and actually God's going to destroy them for what they say unless Job offers a sacrifice for them. And so it's going to backfire on them. Three, and this is critical, they don't listen. Big one. But they don't listen to God first and foremost, and they don't listen to Job. And and we're going to dialogue about that not listening to God component uh, towards the end, because 
we have the benefit of God's word. And oftentimes when we encounter a situation, when we're going to comfort or talk to somebody, we come with our viewpoint. We need to protect our worldview. We need to make sure we can see the world like we see the world. And we forget to go to scripture first, hear God's word so that we can then give truth to somebody. Instead, we give our own truth. And that's what their problem is. They don't listen. And then number four, they don't discern that supernatural forces are at work. They don't see the real battle. See, they look at Job as this beat down, wicked person who needs to repent. And they don't realize that the forces of good and evil are are waging a war through Job and that the universe is a captive audience. The friends miss that whole point. And so they remain very superficial. So as we read and listen to the dialogue in the next chunk of chapters, keep these in mind. And I'll try to highlight them when they come up very specifically, but they're overarching themes we go through. Uh, They'll be helpful in analyzing the friends' speeches because a lot of what they say can be theoretically correct, yet still be wrong. And we need to see the truth behind it all. So after Job's passionate and dark cry of chapter three, his lament that pours out the depths of his depression, he's kind of uh, actually in a counseling situation. This is, this is an ideal client, so to speak. When you're counseling somebody, you want them to tell you everything. And what's fascinating, Job does. He says to his supposed counselors, all the darkness and pain that's in his heart, all the struggle that he has. And so after chapter three, (coughs) the eerily silent friends, and remember their silence has gotten weird after seven days. They feel prodded now to speak. They see his agony and pain, and we're not going to talk about that. But now that he's opened his mouth, we feel like we should talk to him, not so much in comfort, but in correction, which gives us a lot of insight into their motives. And it begins with the wise old sage, Eliphaz the philosopher from Edom. And I'll talk about that. Uh, There's a link to Esau here, depending on your timing. Uh, You can see him. He could be the oldest son of Esau, possibly. Um, We're not given a perfect illustration, but we do know he's Eliphaz from Edom. Uh, And sometimes people get a lot into a name. Uh, If Esau named his oldest son Eliphaz, there's a good chance that People down the line have named their kids Eliphaz, right? You name kids after people uh, in your family. But it could be the oldest son of Esau, but let's dive in. And it's simple what we're going to do through these, um, through these dialogues. What Eliphaz said and then what Eliphaz meant. Uh, now, Eliphaz is the oldest and most distinguished of the friends. He begins the conversation kindly, uh, but he's still uselessly promoting his idea that no human being is righteous before God. There's some truth in that, right? But his premise is you can never be righteous before God. And we realize that you can be righteous before God through Jesus Christ. And you'll notice that all of their advice misses a savior and misses a redeemer. And you'll notice that Job through the discourse is constantly looking for a redeemer and constantly looking for an advocate. Uh, He's seeing the truth as he walks through and the friends are denying it. Um, His speech centers around a dream. This is chapter 4, 12 through 21, which Eliphaz thinks is divine in origin, but it's actually a brilliant deception by the evil one. Satan has attacked and destroyed Job's possessions, his family, his health, and last we've seen his mind. And I want you to notice something because a lot of people miss Satan through the rest of the dialogue. He is remaining a corrupting force and influence in the lives of Job's friends. Eliphaz believes in the law of retribution, that the righteous prosper and the wicked die a premature death. 
And he extols God's greatness and compassion. He thinks if you repent, God will bless in this life. Repent, God gives you stuff. Don't repent, you're going to suffer. That's the mentality he has. And so sorrow is a chance to find hidden wrongs, rectify them, and then enjoy the blessings. So Eliphaz the Temanite from Edom, a place known for its wisdom, kicks off the helpful words, and I put those in quotes, with a word of consolation. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn there. Uh, I want to scare you just a little bit, just for fun. So I have my normal sermon, slightly shorter than last week's, and then seven pages of my handwritten commentary on these passages. So at some point when people leave, I know I'm done. And so that's how we'll work through Job. I'll try to talk as fast as I can. I'm going to walk through the the chapter, what he said, and we're going to kind of work through this so you can understand it. Uh, It was tempting to just summarize it all, but the problem with that is then you go back to read Job and it's hard to, to know what in the world they're saying. And so we're going to work through it as best we can. I might be talking as fast as an auctioneer before the, the night or the morning's overnight. That scared you too, right? <laughs> before the night ends, I will be talking fast. So here we go. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? And basically he's saying, can I have permission to speak? And he's asking that permission because he knows he's going to confront Job's lament in his face. So he already knows I'm going to say the opposite of what Job has said. He says, behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholden him that was failing, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. But now it is coming to thee, and thou faintest. It touches thee, and thou art troubled. In other words, he's saying to Job positive things. You've been a good counselor. You have helped people. You have taught people, and it strengthened them. And people that were crushed under a burden, you've picked them up. Nice compliment, followed by, what's wrong with you? Why don't you take your own advice? This is the dig that comes right afterwards. Then he says this, is not this thy fear? And he talks about, isn't your reverence of God your confidence? Isn't that your hope, right? And he goes on from there and the uprightness of thy ways. And what he's saying is, isn't your whole central being, and this tells you a little bit about Job's testimony, isn't your exemplary life what you've been hinging everything on? Isn't your confidence in God what you hinge on? Isn't the fact that you reverence God what you hinge your life on? And you realize something? Eliphaz, as a quote-unquote believer in God, is actually mocking Job in this moment about how he's lived his life. Don't forget Job 1, 1 through 5. How is he described? Blameless. And you realize he's the holy upright one in this group. Not that they're like vile and wicked, but this is their chance to stick it to the good Christian. And they do right there. Then he goes on with two questions. And again, I'm going to be moving quickly through this. Two rhetorical questions that are logically ridiculous because they don't have an answer to them. And their answer is, their proof is built in the question. So here he goes. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent or where were the righteous cut off? And if you give an illustration to him, say, hey, what about this guy? He'll say, well, he wasn't righteous. What about that lady? Oh, she wasn't innocent. You see how you can't prove the point? It's just a, it's a crazy question designed to set Job up. And notice this. He's negating everything Job said. Job has said, I'm blameless. I'm upright. I haven't committed this horrible sin. What's going on? And he's saying, well, you did. Because when have you seen an innocent person suffer? And Job's saying, I'm seeing him right now. If I had a mirror, you're looking at him. And they're saying, you're not innocent. 
So the, the question is already designed to, to stumble. He goes on, even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. And here's the philosopher in him. He gives a principle that is true. Sowing and reaping is true. Go to Galatians. You go through De- Deuteronomy. You're going to see sowing and reaping. That's a principle that's there. But it's misapplied, and here's why. Eliphaz says, if you sow wickedness, you will be punished now. And if you do good, you will reap rewards on earth. He is a temporally minded man. He thinks only in this world and he's missed the big picture. He then gives an illustration about lions. He, he mentions lions five times in two verses. The roaring of the lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lions are broken. The old lion perisheth for lack of prey and the stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. And I want you to realize something. You go to Psalms, the lion is the depiction of wickedness. So we see lions, we go to the zoo, we're like, oh, the lions, they're out. We should look at them, see them roar. We're, we're amazed by them. They viewed lions in the context of being wicked. And so five degrees of wickedness are defeated. Look, he says, the wicked pay in this life, no matter how strong they are. Now we get to the, the central portion. If you miss nothing about Eliphaz's first If you get nothing about Eliphaz's first speech, it's this vision. Now, this vision is in the night. This vision is saying to Job, it is impossible to be right with God. This vision is that there's no relationship with God. There's no developing relationship. There's no growth with God. There's no personal connection. God is distant. By the way, that's the faith of everyone in the world to some extent. If you believe in Allah, you have a very distant God that you're just appeasing. Every faith has this God that's almost unattainable. There's no relationship. Christianity, truth, is the unique faith that has a relationship with its God and its Redeemer. And so let me read this. um, And remember, he thinks it's divine, but the writer of, of Job is making sure you realize it's not divine. Now, a thing was secretly brought to me. Remember, the philosopher who knows it all is going to give information directly. And mine ear received a little thereof. In thoughts from the visions of the night, when deep sleep falleth on men. All of that to set up. They were talking to me when I was by myself asleep at night. That's the summary. Uh, Fear came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before mine eyes. There was silence. Now, that first portion is the physical component of his vision. And if it's feeling creepy to you, you've pegged it right. Because this is a very physical manifestation of Satan. He is hard to see, but he's there. My bones are shaking and quaking. I feel off. He's petrified. Then he goes on to what was said. I heard a voice, uh, a voice saying, and he goes on, shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he put no trust in his servants. Let me go to these questions here. When he says, shall mortal man be more just than God? What he's saying is, can you be just before God? Uh, the more than you go to Hebrew, there's a change. And oftentimes it is translated more. But in this context, it's saying you can be just before God. A preposition there that, that, that points to, can you be just before God? He says in other ones, can you be pure before your maker? 
He's asking a question that, that is implying that it's not possible. You cannot be just before God. You cannot be pure before your maker. Now, we know as human beings that we're sinful and we're not righteous, but we're neglecting something. And so Eliphaz is saying there's no hope. There's no way forward. There's only judgment and condemnation. And I want you to notice something. There's no relationship possible. There's no redemption possible. There's no covering of your sins possible. There's no future for you. There's only one avenue. Repent and he'll give you stuff. Don't repent. Don't get anything. That's what Eliphaz is pointing to. Then he goes on in 18. He puts no trust in his servants and his angels he charged with folly. Now, if you read through scripture, you don't see God charging his angels with folly except the fall of who? Satan. And so here you get an indication of who's speaking. He charges his angels with folly. Well, he did. A third of them were cast down because Satan in his pride wanted God's glory. And so he was charged with the wrong. And so uniquely, he's speaking from experience here. And then he says something about mankind, which is negated oftentimes in Hebrews. Yes, we're below the angels, but God has elevated us. Look what he says here. How much less in them that dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is in the dust. He's speaking about your makeup, your physical makeup, um, which are crushed before the moth, or as easy to kill as a moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. In other words, you don't matter to God. You die off. It doesn't make a difference. This is the message. There's no point. Doth not their excellency, and that word excellency, if you go back to Hebrews, talking about a tent cord or tent stake that's coming there. So it's talking about your life as a tent. He says, does not their excellency, which is in them, go away when you pull it out, basically? You pull the stake out. What happens to the tent? I'm not a camper. I'm assuming it falls down, right? And that's the idea. At some point, the, the plug is pulled and boop, you're done. That's what happens. This is life. Then he goes on in chapter 5. He's looking at now a mediator. Eliphaz sets up a lot of what Job talks about in the next chapters. He says, call now if there be any that will answer thee, and to which of the saints wilt thou turn? And what he's saying is, there's nobody to take up your cause. There's nobody to stand for you. And and we're going to watch Job in the next chapters literally say, where's my mediator? Where's my advocate? Where's my arbiter? Where's my lawyer? Where's the person who's going to stand in my place? Eliphaz is saying from the beginning, there ain't nobody. No one's going to stand for you. And this is for wrath killeth the foolish man and envy slayeth the silly one. And both those words are pointing to angry emotions that cause erratic behavior. And what they're accusing Job of is, is erratic behavior. His lament, instead of hearing it, they're condemning him for it. You're being a fool is what they're saying. Envy, that word for jealousy, is literally being vexed and kicking against what's happened. He's saying, why are you kicking against reality? Your kids are gone. You've lost everything. You look horrible. You're dying. Quit fighting it. There's no point in fighting this. What's your point? He goes on. I've seen the foolish taking root, but suddenly I cursed his habitation. Talk about a nice guy here. He says, I see a fool getting something in life and I curse them. I pray that they get what they deserve. And then these horribly tone-deaf statements. His children are far from safety, and they are crushed in the gate. Neither is there any to deliver them. What happened to Job's children? They're dead, but how did they die? Crushed in a house. And he says, if you're a fool, your kids die. I put here, tone-deaf. 
Go on. Whose harvest the hungry eateth up and taketh it even out of the thorns and the robber swalloweth up their substance. And what did he lose? All of his stuff and every other one was stolen from him and the rest were destroyed by natural disaster. And then although affliction cometh not forth of the dust, neither does trouble spring out of the ground. Yet man is born into trouble as the sparks fly upward. And here's the gist of it. And there's multiple ways to interpret it. It's, it's a difficult passage in Hebrew uh, to dig to. So it could be a reference to the underworld and the gods of evil causing evil. I think the simpler definition is there because I think he's a bit of a simpleton in his philosophy. And so I think what he's saying is, look, wrong doesn't happen from dirt. Wrong happens because you're wrong. You see evil? It's because you're evil. You're the cause of your problem. Then he switches now and he says to him, he's given him advice now. This is the first, so he's just been beating him up. Now he comes down to what he should do. I would seek unto God and unto God would I commit my cause. And this is a reprimand to Job's lament. And what he says oftentimes is not bad, but you have to understand why he's saying it. He's saying, look, quit overthinking it. Don't process it. Just let go and do what you're supposed to do. And so he says about God, and these are great things to say about God, which doeth great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number, who giveth rain upon the earth and sendeth waters upon the fields. And I don't think I need to interpret that for you. He sends rains and the fields get wet, stuff grows. Uh, to set up on high those that be low, eleven's a transition, that those which more may be exalted to safety. And he's making a contrast saying, God's going to lift up the lowly and crush the mighty. He disappointed the devices of the crafty so that their hands cannot perform their enterprise. In other words, tricky people will be crushed. He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. By the way, Paul quotes that in 1 Corinthians 3.19. What's interesting is Eliphaz is the one caught in his own craftiness here, and he doesn't understand. So he says a statement that's true that Paul quotes, but actually applies to him. And the counsel of the froward is carried headlong. In other words, their plans come to nothing. They meet with darkness in the daytime. In other words, they, it's like dark when it's supposed to be night. They can't see what they're doing. And grope in the noonday as in, in the nighttime, all about their plans not coming to anything. But he saveth the poor from the sword, from their mouth, and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor hath hope, and iniquity stoppeth her mouth. And here's what he's basically saying. The poor are elevated, and the mighty are crushed. Here's what's fascinating. Who's Job? He was mighty, now he's poor. Is he talking to him that say these are encouraging words or is he trying to tell him that you were the mighty and now you're crushed? In other words, Eliphaz helps not at all. Seek an amazing God. And then he gives this description of two types of people and Job could fit either description. Again, useless help. And then he transitions to this idea of submissiveness to God. Behold, happy is the man whom God correcteth. Therefore, despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty. And these are truths. But I want you to understand the premise of his preaching that he's going to talk about. We are called to be submissive to God. We are called to, and Hebrews talks about that, that we have the discipline from him to correct us and correct our behavior. But he's teaching this with one thing in mind, and it's the prosperity gospel. He's saying to Job, hey, get things right with God so you can get things from God. This is the point. And this is exactly what Satan has been saying and accusing God of. People worship you for what they can get. But again, there's still going to be some truth about God woven in here. He maketh sore and bindeth up. He woundeth and his hands make whole. In other words, when God corrects, he still heals his children. 
He'll deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven there shall be no evil touch thee. He throws you back to Proverbs and, and Psalms. Sometimes they repeat these statements. It means that he'll get you out of the full range of troubles. Nothing is too far gone for God. In famine he shall redeem thee from death, and in war from the power of the sword. Those are oftentimes put together. Uh, he says there, thou shalt be hid from the scourge of the tongue. That's false accusations. Neither shalt thou be afraid of destruction when it cometh. I find the false accusations to be fascinating because they're accusing Job falsely and saying you'll be freed from them. And ultimately Job will be freed. At destruction and famine thou shalt laugh. Neither shalt thou be afraid of the beast of the earth. For thou shalt be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with thee. And those three lines of poetry are saying you're going to be at one with nature. The stones of the field are in the way for agriculture. So if you're going to be at peace with the stones, they're not going to interfere with your crops. And the beasts aren't going to run off and be captured. Your farm animals are going to stay close. So he's talking about socially a tranquil life. Good with nature, good with the farm, good with the business. So this is just livelihood in this sense. Then it says, thou shalt know that thy tabernacle shall be in peace. Thou shalt visit thy habitation and shalt not sin. In other words, all's going to be well in the household. Then it says, thou shalt know also that thy seed shall be great and thine offspring as the grass of the earth. Your kids are going to be amazing. And you're going to have more kids than can be counted. Said to a man who has lost 10 children all at once. I want you to see the tone deaf nature that's here and a poignant reminder to Job that he doesn't have children and of what he's lost. Thou shalt come to the grave in full age, like as a shock of corn cometh in a season. Now, what's funny about this first speech is it all comes true through God, but not how, not how Eliphaz is saying it in this prosperity gospel. Here's the man's sum of his character. Lo, this we have searched it, so it is so. You ever had someone say that? I've looked into it and this is how it is. This is what I think, so that's what it is. That's Eliphaz. We've looked into this, and this then is the reality. And he says, hear it and know thou it for thy good. Listen to me, and you'll do okay. Do what I say, buddy, and you'll be fine. That's the, the gist. Now, obviously, knowing all those words and what he said kind of don't help until you know what he meant. What, what did Eliphaz mean, and what did he miss? I'm going to give you a few points here, and then we'll jump into Job. I know this is a little different as we walk through a dialogue. We kind of have to walk through the dialogue. This is what Eliphaz meant. He meant to push Job to yield to God to get peace and quiet. And I want you to see it's always about getting. Do this for God and God will do this for you. If you will just repent and agree with God, then you will get peace and quiet. Now, Job has nothing to repent of. So he's left in a box here, but this is what Eliphaz is saying. He's promoting Satan's agenda unwittingly of serving God for the benefits of piety. Serve God to get what you want, which would just give a victory in the category for Satan. Satan says to God, people serve you for what they get. I'm going to serve God because my life will be in order. My family will be in order. My kids will respect me. I'll make enough money to live on, buy a house, have a car. I'll do this, God, if you give me that. I will serve you if you heal this family member of cancer, of depression, of whatever wasting disease that's out there. If, you, if I'll serve you, you give me this. Or make it more personal. God, I'll serve you if you take this away from me or you solve this problem in my life. And that's what Satan says. We only serve God because of what God gives us, not for who God is. 
So he's pitching the idea that in this life, we will definitely see all things made right. The harvest or payment for wickedness and good will be seen on earth in the here and now. Things will be rectified in the here and now. So get busy fixing your life up. It makes sense, right? If you're going to get the reward now, take care of your problems. Note this, the harvest is at the end of the age, a fact that Eliphaz misses. Matthew 13, 39 says the harvest is the end of the world. And so what you see in Eliphaz is a worldly viewpoint, a temporal viewpoint. He ignores the possibility of a relationship with God. He ignores any component of eternity. And so he looks at life only through the lens that he has in front of him. It's a very convenient lens when you're wise, old, and rich. Because nothing's going wrong in your life. And Job is destroying your worldview. He's making you uneasy. I want you to understand this. If Job would have listened to Eliphaz, he would have fallen right into Satan's trap of trying to manipulate God for what he can give to them. The idea that God warrants worship for what he can give us and nothing else. Eliphaz is basically preaching that message. God is good for what you get from God. It's a give me mentality. And I put here, are we guilty of that type of worship? God, if you give me peace, I worship God because he gives me peace. Look, we, we come to Christ because we're sinners and lost and, and, and desperate, and we gain eternal life through him because he died on the cross for our sins. But I even think sometimes we take that and we worship God only for what he gives us. He is our insurance card, so to speak. Uh, what a faulty way to worship the God of all the universe who created us to bring him glory. Do we worship that way? And I put another other question. Are we guilty of promoting Satan's lies with our take on religion? Look, Eliphaz views himself as a highly religious man. He thinks that what was said to him in the night was from God. He doesn't think it's from Satan. And recognize this, Satan disguises himself as an agent of light. He comes in or an angel of light. He doesn't come in and say, hey, this is Satan. Do this. Now he comes in with this, with this statement that aligns with Eliphaz's worldview. Satan walked right beside Eliphaz and just carried him the next step over that he needed. He's still influencing what goes on. And so Eliphaz steps back. And surely, if you're Eliphaz, he thinks, Job has to see the light now. I've searched it. It must be so. So Job should be good now. Everything's fine. I make a note. I don't know if you've ever given someone counsel or walk with someone through a journey and something, and you make this statement like, everything should be fine now. And I want you to realize, read Job 5.27 and make sure you're never that person, right? I've seen it. I know it. This is the way it is. Why don't you walk along with me? It's that arrogance of knowing it all that comes out. And, and the problem is he's shed no light on anything. And so it shifts now to Job Job is now going to speak for a while, and he begins with, and I put what Job said, you go to six. Now, Job is, is going to struggle here a little bit. Uh, you're going to see Job say some things against his friends and against God, uh, things that aren't true. He's going to accuse God of things that aren't happening, and we're going to pinpoint those. But we're going to walk through a man who's still facing misery. So Job answered and said, uh, chapter 6, Oh, that my grief were thoroughly weighed and my calamity laid in the balances together. For now it will be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words are swallowed up. And what he's saying is, I don't think you understand, guys, how heavy my agony is. 
He is broken in every component from physical possessions to loss of family to loss of health. And I want you to realize loss of mental stability and strength and fervor. He's depressed. He's broken. That's what he's telling them. You guys have no idea how much weight. And I want you to think about that. How heavy are the sands of the sea? It's kind of unmeasurable. And he says, therefore, my words are swallowed up. He says, look, these rash words that you're accusing me of, I'm not saying them from folly or foolishness. I'm speaking from misery. Job is being honest. He says, I'm I'm being true to what I'm facing right now. And then he says some things here. He says, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. The poison whereof drinketh up my spirit. The terrors of God do set themselves in array against me. He says, I'm broken because God's wrath is poured on me. Uh, Psalm 88, 16 says this, Thy fierce wrath goeth over me, thy terrors have cut me off. You're going to read some of these same words from the psalmist. Depending on your view of the sparks flying upward, uh, there is a God in the Canaanite pagan religion that shot arrows into people. And so if, if Eliphaz, take the other description, is saying from the underworld, the evil is coming, then Job is saying, don't blame the underworld for the evil. God is shooting these into me. And that's what's breaking me, he says. Because he worshiped God and had a relationship with God and felt close to God. And right now he feels like his friend is shooting into him. He says, Do the wild donkey bray when he hath grass or loweth the ox over his fodder? Can that which is unsavory be eaten without salt? And I say, absolutely not. Everything needs to be salted. So that's my take on food. Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? The things that my soul refused to touch are as my sorrowful meat. And he does a metaphor here as well. He looks at the donkey who depicts a free spirit and the ox depicts a mighty workhorse. And he says, no matter which one I am, they don't cry unless they need something, unless something's missing. He says, I'm not crying for no reason. I'm crying because I'm missing something. Something's gone. Uh, the food and refusing it. Job's, he's saying, uh, it's unsavory. I, I can't consume this. I can't eat this. This life is too much. This is a cry of a desperate person. This person is at the end end degree of his life. He he can't handle it anymore. That's what he's trying to tell them. I can't imagine grinning and bearing it. I can't listen to what you're saying because it doesn't work. Oh, that I might have my request and that God would grant me the thing that I long for. By the way, 8 through 10 is the central portion of his response, uh, the most important thing to pull out. Oh, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, even that it would please God to destroy me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Then should I have yet have comfort. Yea, I would harden myself in sorrow. Let him not spare, for I have not concealed. And the word denied is there, the words of the Holy One. Job says to Eliphaz, I'm not looking for life. I'm looking for death. I want to die right now. I want God to take me home. If I knew he was going to take me home, I could handle this right now. I could, I could bear this. That's what he means when he comes to harden myself and my sorrow, not become hardened, but be able to bear my sorrow if I knew God would take me off the earth. And here's his comfort. I haven't denied the Holy One. And, here's, and this is fascinating. Don't miss this. Job is saying, I've still brought glory to God and I would love to die having not denied God. I've not concealed his word, so if you just take me off the planet right now, then I die a faithful servant of God. And I want you to get this a little bit, is his relationship with God is shining through here because he is completely feeling abandoned. Remember what he just said? God Almighty has shot poison arrows into me. 
And then he's right here within a couple verses saying, but I want to honor God till I die. I want to be a faithful servant. And I'll talk about this at the end a little bit, but boy, we should always have his glory fixed in our mind and not be giving God a reason why we don't glorify him. I don't glorify you, God, because you did this to me and you did that to me and you let that happen and this took place. No, no, no. Job is the perfect illustration of someone who doesn't understand what in the world is going on, thinks that the Almighty is shooting in him and says, but I want to die a faithful servant. What is my strength that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? In other words, there's no, I don't have any strength. I'm weak. Am I, is my strength the strength of stones? Am I strong as a rock? No. Or is my flesh of brass? Are you, are you the man of steel? No, I'm not the man of steel. Is not my help in me and his wisdom driven quite from me? And that's basically saying this. Have I any help in me when all the resources I have are gone? I don't have anything. And Job is telling his friends, I'm bringing nothing to the table right now. I don't have what it takes. Now we have a a switch. Job is now going to turn on his friends. And he's going to say to them, "Um, you're useless, basically. You're ungodly and you're useless. He says, to him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friend. And that same word for friend, my loyal coveted friends, we've made a promise together that we would pick each other up, that we walk through life together, that we would encourage each other. Shouldn't you take care of me? He says, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. And he puts an accusation on them. He says, your lack of comfort is sinful. And I want to mention this, not in my notes, so it's a bonus. Um, He's not wrong there. As the church, if we don't come alongside of God's children in comfort and in counsel, and all we can do is is condemn and, and tell them how they're wrong and prove them wrong, not only is it unkind and vindictive, it's sinful, it's not right. You forsake the fear of the Almighty. How? Because they are His children, and we should treat every believer as a child of God, not just as someone we know at church. And so it drives us to respond differently. He gives an illustration here. And uh, for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize 15 through 21. It's about a brook drying up. It's about water drying up in the desert. And what he says is you're like a stream that dries up in the desert, but not just one that dries up, one that's not supposed to dry up. And he talks about people coming to this brook and looking for water, expecting water and not finding it. Now, what happens when you're in the desert and you expect to find water somewhere and you don't? You don't just stay thirsty. You die. And he's saying, you useless friends, you're killing me. I come to you for water. You're supposed to have water. You don't have water. I'm dying in the desert. And then he goes on to this call for sympathy. And by the way, that's, there's no comfort in their religion. They're, 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 they're a wasteland. They bring nothing to the table. Then he's asking for sympathy. He, he talks at the beginning. He says, I didn't ask you for a handout, 22 through 23. But then he calls on them, teach me and I will hold my tongue and calls me to understand wherein I've erred. He's begging them, give me instruction, you wise ones. How forcible are right words. He admits that he's willing to hear what is right, even if it's difficult for him. But then he tells them, but what doth your arguing reprove? What does your words help? How, how are they right? He's basically telling them, you tell me how you're right in what you say and they're not right. Do you imagine to reprove words and the speeches of one that is desperate, which are as wind? In other words, he's saying to them, are you trying to just answer what I've said? Are you just going to keep accusing me of being a big old windbag, talking and talking and talking and saying nothing? Yea, you overwhelm the fatherless and you dig a pit for a friend. And I don't think that takes much, right? (laughs) Explaining. 
Now, therefore, be content. Look upon me. And that's a critical statement right there. It tells you what they've been doing. See, in their culture, you would look at someone if you talk to them. Most people's culture. But they're not looking at him when they're talking is what he's saying. They're looking away from him. And that is a way to tell him we don't approve of what you're saying. And then by not looking at him, they're saying we don't approve of you as a person. So if you want to get a feel, you think Job is pretty harsh to his friends. They have by their stance, how they're standing. So they're talking to Job. He's the piano. I can't point with the other arm. And then he's sitting there and he's staring right ahead and they're talking this way. They're making a speech to nothing and they're leaving him feeling exactly what they're trying to communicate. We don't approve of you. For it is evident unto you if I lie. He says, look at my eyes. Look at my face. You'll know that I'm not lying. Return, I pray you, let it not be iniquity. In other words, don't believe what's false. Return again. My righteousness is in it. He's saying it's there. You can see it. You'll know it. Is there sin, iniquity in my tongue? Cannot my taste discern perverse things? And Job is saying to them, look, I know I'm not off my rocker here. I know I'm not wrong. I know I'm not unrighteous. If you'll just talk to me, talk to me, look me in the face. He says, I'm able to still see what's right and wrong. And, And by the way, there's times when a sufferer reaches a point where they cannot, their despair overtakes them. And you know what you're called to do as a child of God, as a friend, as a brother or sister in Christ, is discern when someone reaches that point. It's to not dive into this critiquing and, and disapproving of their words. That's what Job is saying to them. Walk the journey. You're going to speak truth, but you're not spending all your time refuting what may come out of their mouth. Now, chapter 7 is a major shift, and that happens oftentimes in Job's answers, talking to the friends, now friends this way, and now he speaks to God. And every time in his answer, he's in a call to God now. And 7, 1 through 3 is basically saying that time on earth is kind of pointless. I'm either a hired worker or a slave hoping for a meager reward. Uh, I'm looking for a little bit of shade. My months are all vanity. They're just a breath and the nights are a burden to me. That's one through three. He's basically saying to God, why am I so important to you? Leave me be, is what he's thinking. When I lie down, I say, when shall I rise? The night be gone, and I am full of tossings to and fro unto the dawning of the day. When you're suffering, the night drags on. That's what he's saying. My flesh is clothed with worms and clods of dust. My skin is broken and become loathsome. And what he's saying is, I'm like a living corpse right now. What happens when you decompose back then? The worms eat your body, you're covered in dirt. And he's saying, I am a living, walking, dead person. And then he says this, this uh, paradox that happens in suffering. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. And this is that paradox that suffering has. The nights drag on. Time is like standing still because of the pain, but life is just slipping away quickly. So it's moving slow and going fast is what he's basically saying. He goes on, oh, remember that my life is wind. And so from seven down to 10, he's basically saying this, life is fleeting. He talks about God seeing him. You're not going to see me on earth anymore, God. You're letting me slip away. That's his accusation to God. I'm vanishing like a cloud, he says. I'm just disappearing. And chapter seven is, is a paradox in itself because he's complaining for the first 10 verses about the fact that God is just focusing too much on him or or spending too much time or no, he's not seeing him enough. Sorry. I'm vanishing and you're not noticing me. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to go to my house. I'm not going to be there. Neither shall his place know him more. And so he says from one to 10, he's just saying this thing, God, you don't care about me. I'm just, 
I'm just a vapor. I'm a mist. I'm nothing. I'm a breath. That word vanity is breath, same as Ecclesiastes. I'm just, I'm just nothing, and it's gone. And before you know it, I've disappeared, and, and I'm no more. I'm not going to be in the house. I'm not going to come back. And then Job shifts from I'm just drifting away to nothingness to leave me alone, God. You're paying too close attention to me. He says, I'm going to speak in the anguish of my spirit. I'll complain in the bitterness of my soul. At least he's honest. I'm speaking from a broken mind and heart. I'm speaking from depression and anguish and torture. And then he says in 12, am I a sea or a whale that thou settest to watch over me? And those words don't communicate exactly what is said in Hebrew. Sea is not a sea, it's the sea. And the sea depicts something in their culture. And the whale is really a sea monster. And so what he's saying there uh, from Canaanite pagan religion, and he's not saying he's a pagan. This is just taking from his culture. And he's saying, am I the sea and the sea monster? By the way, that's Leviathan, the personification of evil. He's saying, do I personify evil? And is that why you're attacking me? Am I the image of evil that is projected and therefore you need to come after me like supernatural evil? 13 through 14, it says this, when I say my bed shall comfort me, my couch shall ease my complaint, then thou scarest me with dreams and terrifiest me with visions. I go to sleep for comfort. If you've ever struggled mentally, sleep is a reprieve, right? If you're, if you're tortured with thoughts Going to sleep is, is the end, right? It's a stop. It's the break. It's the gift that you have. And he says, I go to sleep. I try to sleep. And then you send me scary dreams and night terrors. He says, 15 to 16, my soul chooseth strangling and death rather than my life. In other words, I'd rather be strangled to death is what he's saying than live this way. I would rather take a horrible death. I loathe it. I will not live always. Let me alone for my days are vanity. In other words, I hate this life. Leave me be. I can't take it anymore. And then he goes on, what is man that thou shouldest magnify him? And that's fascinating because he takes a negative look. He's saying, God, why are you focused on me? Why is humanity important? Now, that's the opposite of what David says in Psalm 8, where he says, and sees God's attention as a wonderful thing. And understand this, when you start seeing the blessings of God as a burden, it's a flag that comes up that you're wrestling, you're struggling, you're not seeing things as they should be seen. And he says, why do you magnify him and that you all should have set thine heart upon him and thou should have visit him every morning and try him every moment. And what he's saying is God is not looking on him with this beloved care. He's saying God is a health inspector. He's coming into the restaurant every day to try to shut him down. That's what he's trying to do. You're coming in and you're trying to take me down every minute. You're just picking at me over and over and over again. And he goes on, how long wilt thou not depart from me, nor let me alone till I swallow down my spittle? In other words, he's saying, give me a chance to swallow. You're not giving me a moment. 20 and 21 are, are um, interesting. Theologically, he's off. I've sinned. What shall I do unto thee? And thou, O thou preserver of men. He's saying this. What does my mediocre sin do to you? What, what's the big deal about my little sin? Why do you make that a big deal in life? Why are you doing this? And remember, though, our sin separates us from God. Job's off here. And he, he, he's asking God a question that the answer is your sin is a huge deal because it's against the righteousness and holiness of God. Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee so that I'm a burden to myself? He's saying, why am I the target? I, I can't even handle it myself. I'm, I'm, I'm crumbling here. 
And it says, he asks a question that is, is great. And why dost thou not pardon my transgression and take away mine iniquity? And is that not fascinating? There's a lot of people that say, well, you can't see the cross in Job. Well, you can see the cross in Job. Job asked the number one question, why don't you take care of my sin? Won't you do something for me? And what has Christ done for us? Came to earth, lived a perfect life, died in our stead, took our sins upon us, and rose from the grave victorious. And we're going to be celebrating that next week. And Job is begging God, I need you to do this. Well, God did, and God does. He says, for now shall I sleep in the dust, and thou shalt seek me in the morning, but I shall not be. And that's his little, I call toddler moment. I'm going to run away from home, and you're going to miss me. That's the last closing statement. Now, that's what Job said. What did Job mean? And, and I want to dive into this and kind of wrap this this up. Job rightly feels like his friends are not listening at all. He wants them to care and comfort him, to help him through this, but they're consumed with proving and condemning. And I want you to note that in your brain. When it comes to counsel, your job is not to prove and condemn. You're to walk with the child of God through the journey, helping them see truth, not beating them over the head with your theology and philosophy. Uh, And so Job speaks out both to his friends and toward God, expressing his disappointment and a bit of his frustration. And look, Job's off. We see that in chapter 7. But here's what's fascinating. Job is talking his way to truth, and you're going to see that unfold, whereas the friends keep talking themselves further into the lie. Uh, Christopher Ashe notes this, and it's precisely by speaking that Job is going to argue, cajole, and almost preach his way toward the truth. And we see that. He's, he's asking the right question at the end. Why don't you forgive my sins? And God says, I am. He just can't hear God's answer because of his pain and his suffering. I want you to see what he's done. One, he's clarifying that his words come from deep misery and not folly. He's not being a fool, he's telling his friends. I'm speaking from the heart and my heart's broken. And we need to listen to people who are broken and not just try to say, well, you're a fool for saying that understand what they're speaking from. He clarifies, and this is the key point of the whole message, that his desire is to honor and glorify God. Job, though struggling with why and feeling abandoned, still has not lost sight of who God is and why he worships God. Here is Job in a very unique chapter 6, verse 10, (coughs) screaming at Satan, though he doesn't know it, you're a loser. You lost. You're a liar. It's not true. I worship God for who God is because life couldn't be worse than it is for Job. By the way, you'll never suffer as Job suffered. There's only one person to suffer more. That's Christ. And Job is the extreme example given to us in Scripture. You can't be as rich as him. You can't have everything that he had and go from the the, the height to the depth that he has. He is specifically there as an illustration to show us what God can redeem. And it's everything. He clarifies his disappointment with his friends. As believers, we should bring hope to the suffering. We carry the message of hope. We should be a source of blessing. Job's friends are a dead stream that people rely on and die because they rely on them. So as we move into chapter 7, Job now, as you look at this um, struggling, what is he saying in chapter 7? That's about his friends. Well, we find him really questioning God now, wondering about his worth in God's eyes. God seems to be casually letting me drift off the scene to become meaningless. But here's the thing we have to realize. Job in chapter 7, 1 through 10 is missing the point. You never slip away and disappear from God's eyes. Death does not end our existence before the Lord. 
And he makes that point in Matthew when he argues with the Sadducees about resurrection. And he says something, Matthew twenty-two thirty-two. This is the close of his argument. He's quoting God. Jesus says, who is God, so he's quoting himself. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And his answer to Job is exactly that. You don't disappear. You never fade from the scene. I am the God of the living. And he's mentioning three dead guys, by the way. So just to keep it in perspective. Job's charge that man does not really matter to God is completely ungrounded. And here's a reminder for us. What we feel is not necessarily reality. If you're standing here and you feel abandoned by God and you feel like he's gone, you feel like his arrows are in you, the only truth I can say to you is that's not the truth. I'm not denying that's how you feel. I'm just saying that the reality is God is with you and God says you never become meaningless to him, that you're always valuable, that you always have purpose. And then Job has shifted his attack and we hear him wondering why God is pesting him right after thinking God was neglecting him. So I want you to see how his mind is struggling. He feels like God, he is God's target. And I know many believers feel that. When you wrestle with something, you feel like God is shooting at you. God is, is making you suffer. God has picked you. Remember this about God. God is omnipresent. So he's everywhere. So this whole concept that God has to zero his focus in on one person is somewhat uh, giving him human characteristics. Now, Satan is not omnipresent, so Satan can zero in on one person, but God in his omniscience would never be zeroing in on one person because he's always zeroed in on everyone. It's impossible for him not to be zeroed in, but it's a, it's a sentiment that shows Job, 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 Job is seeing things from the wrong angle. If you hear me say that, that means the sermon's over, right? Um, <laughs> He's missing the blessing of God's attention and he's turned it into a burden. And remember, whenever that happens, when something's a blessing, when something's extolled and you say, I don't like that about God, I don't like that characteristic, well, then you're turning a blessing into a burden. I put here, Job is struggling from his suffering and mental condition. He's having a hard time seeing God and feels abandoned. Yet his wrestling tells us who his hope is in and it's still in God. And that's important to remember. Even when we're struggling, when you're crying out to God, you're saying, you've abandoned me. I don't feel you're there. You just realize something about your cry. You're still talking to the one who is there. His desire to honor God, even when he cannot understand God and what is happening, is both commendable and should be convicting. Job, even though he sees things from a distorted view, is not giving up on life. Uh, this guy Hartley was writing a commentary. He says, since he refuses to give up on life, he's never abandoning his search for God. Job has not quit God. He might say a lot of harsh things about God, but he keeps talking to God. And I, I mentioned this, can the same be said of you? Do we abandon our search for God and the messiness of life? What can happen in your life that will make you stop looking for God? And if the answer is anything, then you know you've gone off what you should do. Job though he wanders all over the place, never leaves this focus of seeking God. And then the last question, do we make glorifying him, even when we can't understand him, the focus of our life? Job did. Um, so what do we get from this first chat with the first friend? This is, this is the actual close. So I'll, I'll, 
is the Paul trick. That's the end, but not the end. There's three more chapters. So now we're on chapter, end chapter here. Uh, Eliphaz is the promoter of religion and works apart from grace. He sees God as distant and man unable to have a relationship with him to ever be close to God. His message, if believed, leads to despair and a bootstrap faith. It is a serve God because of the benefits, a mentality that permeates Christianity in the United States and the Western world, because we always want to get something from God. Uh, but know that faith devoid of grace and the cross will only lead to despair, especially when suffering occurs. Eliphaz's wisdom is turned to foolishness by God. This is not truth. Uh, don't fall prey to such an easy and materialistic faith. It is exactly what Satan hopes you will believe. Job, on the other hand, shares his misery openly. He hurts beyond belief and struggles to see God anywhere around. Uh, C.S. Lewis lost his wife and he wrote a book about it. It's called A Grief Observed. And he makes a note that it seems to happen in reality. He says, when things are going well and you turn to God in gratitude, there God is with open arms, or so it seems. But let life trip you up, hurt you, or find some suffering. And C.S. Lewis, I'm summarizing his words. He says, you're going to go to God and you're going to have a door slammed in your face. And you feel like God is absent. And I want you to realize that's how Job is feeling. Yet in the midst of that, and I might make this note, just because you feel like God shut the door in your face doesn't mean God did shut the door in your face. Feelings do not equal reality, and that's a critical thing in the Christian walk. But in the midst of a distant feeling, Job feels like the door is in his face. He still wants to honor God because regardless of what he feels at the moment, he knows relationally his God. He knows him. He has a personal relationship with him. He knows who holds tomorrow and eternity. He knows hope is only found in God. And I put this, do you carry that same hope in you? And then again, from the practical standpoint about suffering, know this, when you're dealing with someone who's walking through misery, you need to go to God's word first. You need to put your worldview aside. You need to set aside all the things you think and the way you want life to work and, and all the things that come up inside of you, that defense and that distance that you want. And you need to make sure you go to God's word and listen to God so that the advice that you give through the journey that someone's facing is no longer your theories on life and your lifestyle, but instead it's from God. And so you discern and apply the right things with somebody. And, and I want to mention this. If you learn nothing from the friends, there's no quick fix. You're not going to see it, tell it, and it's all going to be good. You need to walk through the journey with somebody. Uh, so as we think about all the components of, of being the friend, maybe being Job, and how we need to function in this walk, hopefully we can apply this as we journey through. Uh, Bill Dad will give us another look. He's the, it's been done this way, so it always needs to be done this way kind of guy. Uh, if, if he was there, square wheels would stick around, right? You never invent a round wheel because you can't change from the past. But we'll be going through this and seeing Job wander away and wander uh, back, and he's going to end up landing on the truth, questions about an advocate and redeemer uh, coming forward. Let's pray together. And Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to, to gather together to study uh, your word as you've given us the book of Job so we can understand what suffering looks like, how we can struggle mentally, that we may feel something and it not be reality. And, and hopefully we can learn to um, just trust you, uh, even mistrust our own feelings when they deny what your word says and what we know about it. Job was struggling uh, because what he knew about you 
was coming in conflict with what he felt he was experiencing. And so he's wrestling with that, yet he still wants to honor and glorify you. Give us the strength and fortitude to do that. That though we may not know, that we may not understand, though it may be a wrestling and a struggle in our hearts, we still come back to our relationship with you, to who you are. We worship you because you are God. And not because you give us everything we want, not because this world looks the way we thought it would look, but instead because you're God and worthy of all glory and honor and praise. And that's why we worship and serve you. And that's what Job is showing us. In your precious and holy name, amen.